You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stuck. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, kids, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles of rocky shorelines, sandy seafloors, rocky banks, deep-sea canyons, and maritime artifacts. So happy December, everyone. I'm bringing you a recording from a lecture I attended at the San Francisco State Estuary and Ocean Science Center in Tiburon as part of the Rosenberg Institute seminar series in early November this year. The Honorable Dr. Jane Lubchenco gave a public forum talk called Hope for People and the Ocean, highlighting some real reason to hold on to hope during these trying times that we worry about ocean health. Dr. Lubchenco is a distinguished university professor and marine studies advisor to the president at Oregon State University and served as the Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and the administrator for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration between 2009 and 2013. This lecture was recorded on November 7, 2018, with support from the San Francisco State Estuary and Ocean Science Center. So I hope you'll enjoy and stay tuned here to Ocean Currents. It's really wonderful to have all of you here tonight. My name is Karina Nielsen. I'm the Executive Director of the Estuary and Ocean Science Center here at San Francisco State University. <laughs> Uh, okay, now I'm going to turn to meat red. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, it is uh, really my extraordinary pleasure tonight uh, to introduce our speaker, uh, the Honorable Dr. Jane Lubchenko. And uh, I, I almost feel a little awkward saying it that way, only because um, uh, Jane and I go back a long way. So we're in academia, we have kind of families in some ways that are academic families. And so Jane and I are academic families. She's my academic mom. So, <laughs> um, so uh, Jane uh, Lubchenko comes to us today. She's a, um, a university distinguished professor. And she's a marine studies advisor to the president of Oregon State University. Um, and she did her undergraduate degree at Colorado College. Uh, she did her master's degree at the University of Washington. And she did her um, PhD at Harvard University. Uh, and in 1975, she, um, sorry, excuse me, 1977, she started at Oregon State University. And she's been there uh, ever since. She did a short stint as an assistant professor at Harvard before moving there. Um, one of the interesting things, uh, about Jane's trajectory professionally was that for the first few years of her uh, professional life at Oregon State is that she shared a tenure-track position with her husband, Bruce Menge, um, and they did that with purpose and intention uh, so that they would both have time uh, to um, 
have family time, have work-life balance. Uh, but it was a very pioneering, bold move, and there weren't very many universities that did that. So that's one of the cool things about Jane. There's a lot of cool things about Jane. I'm going to tell you about a few of them because I'm so incredibly proud of her. Um, she, was, uh, she worked at the Smithsonian Institute uh, for a while as a research associate. She was visiting professor. She's worked internationally, uh, University of West Indies, uh, the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, Universidad Católica um, in Chile, University of Oceanography in Quindao in China, um, University of Canterbury in New Zealand. She's certainly a globe trotter or an ocean trotter. Um, she uh, served from 2009 to 2013 uh, as the chair of the Department of Zoology in, uh, at Oregon State. So full, full academic life. Um, she also has many, many honors. She was on the National Science Board for two terms. She was nominated for each term by uh, President uh, Bill Clinton and confirmed by the Senate twice for that. As we know, that's not always an easy task. <laughs> um, she then served as Undersecretary for the, uh, for the Department of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere. And that position is the administrator for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration from 2009 to 2013. She was nominated by former President Barack Obama and confirmed by the U.S. Senate again. Um, she was, uh, took a break after that uh, and served as a visiting, uh, distinguished visiting uh, scholar in public service at Stanford University in uh, uh, Mimi and Peter Haas uh, named position. And after that, as if all this wasn't enough, she was the inaugural U.S. Science Envoy for Oceans with the U.S. State Department for 2014 to 2016 under Secretary John Kerry uh, and President Obama. So she's done a lot of public service. Um, in addition to this amazing public service, you might ask, well, why would she be called for all this public service? Well, she's an extraordinary scholar. Um, she has... Uh, Eight of her publications, this is an academic accolade, so I don't expect all of you to maybe know what this is, but she has eight science citation classic papers. So that means other scholars think her work is, is really quite important. They cite her work a lot. Um, so that's huge. She was elected, uh, she is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, um, many other important societies. She was president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, the International Council for Science, the Ecological Society of America. Um, she was given the most prestigious award ever given by the National Academy, or given by the National Academy of Sciences, the Public Welfare Medal, um, which is a really huge honor. Uh, and for her public service, in addition, she received the highest honor the Coast Guard gives to a civilian, the U.S. Coast Guard Public Service Award. So I'm telling you all this because I think you should know what a rock star Jane is before she gives her talk. Uh, <laughs> and it is my incredible honor and pleasure to introduce her, and she is going to talk to us about hope, hope for people and hope for the ocean. Uh, without further ado, welcome Jane. Thank you. Evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. It's really a treat for me to be here. One of the uh, most exciting things for a teacher is to see your students thrive and succeed. And I could not be more proud of Karina as my academic daughter 
And I know my husband, Bruce Mengi, who is her academic father, shares our excitement and pride in her. So thank you, Karina, for the invitation, and thank you for what you're doing. It's really great to be here. I've enjoyed speaking with some of you this evening, and I really do appreciate all of your uh, attendance tonight. Thank you for coming. Uh, hello to everybody that's in the over overflow room. I appreciate your being here as well. I want to focus our attention tonight on hope, and hope for the ocean and people obviously is my title. For anybody paying attention to the news, that title might seem a bit at odds with a lot of the doom and gloom that we hear about the ocean. If you're reading the newspaper, listening to the radio, watching TV, watching your screens, uh, you see news about climate change, ocean acidification, plastic pollution, coral reef bleaching, uh, dead zones. It sort of seems like one bad news story after another. All of that is out there. And it is an immense challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. And tonight, I hope to convince you that there actually are some amazing things that are underway, that if we can figure out how to replicate them, how to scale them up, we could turn this narrative around. So the bottom line for my remarks tonight are going to be simply how connected we are to the ocean. Those of you who have the privilege of living close to the ocean can feel that connection. Not everyone is aware of it, but we are so, people around the planet are connected to the ocean. Uh, our future is connected to the future of the ocean. There are unprecedented problems, but solutions do exist. Yes, we can create new solutions, but we actually have a wealth of them at hand. We're just not using them to the extent that we need to. And for that to happen, the pace of change needs to change. I think it's time for a new narrative about the ocean. When I was growing up, uh, <clears throat> and for most of human history, the narrative around the ocean was, it's so immense, it's so bountiful, that nothing we can do can possibly affect the ocean. It is too big to fail. Now the narrative has become, it's such a mess. We have so many problems, it's too big to fix. I think it's time for a new narrative that says, it is so important to our future, we can fix it, Let's get on with doing it. And I hope you will agree with me by the end of the talk. So, in addition to that message of hope and a new narrative, you all, whether you are scientists or citizens, have a key role to play in framing this new narrative. So let's dive in. Uh, I'm going to give you a sense of where I'm coming from on this so that you can uh, understand my thought process Pay a little attention to why should you care, if you don't already. Uh, what are the problems, what are some solutions, and what can you do? So that's sort of my uh, overarching uh, path tonight. Um, I've been connected to the ocean for much of my career. I grew up in Colorado, but I've been working in and around the ocean uh, for much of my professional life. 
uh, doing work around the planet and seeing problems and solutions uh, globally. So almost or over 40 years as an academic researcher, but also, as Karina mentioned, having an opportunity to be a public servant, to serve citizens of this country uh, as the head of NOAA, uh, working uh, with members of the cabinet, working with the president and his team, working with members of Congress, uh, and the immensely talented people at NOAA, as a science agency, uh, almost 13 billion uh, people, I mean 13,000 people, sorry, 5 billion dollars, or 13 billion people, that's more than on the planet. <laughs> uh, $5 billion budget uh, doing uh, just incredible work, uh, whether it's on the ocean, coast, climate, uh, or weather, and the intersection of all those. Uh, I also had an opportunity uh, as Undersecretary of Commerce to work with not only members of Congress, uh, but governors and a lot of uh, citizens around the country, uh, and uh, with uh, other people around the world, uh, because NOAA and the U.S., of course, partner with a lot of other nations. So doing a lot of interaction with leaders, with citizens, with fishermen, with people all over. And then for two years, as the, as the first U.S. science envoy for the ocean, uh, doing science diplomacy in China, in Indonesia, and in three countries in Africa, uh, working on ocean issues with those leaders. So a wealth of experience that really gave me some insight into uh, not only the problems and solutions, but how people are thinking about the ocean, how they're connected to it, how they depend upon it. And it's become increasingly obvious to me that there are some very obvious ways people understand that they are connected to the ocean. It provides for us. Uh, it feeds our souls and our imaginations as well as our bellies. Uh, people's livelihoods depend on the ocean. And so there are many ways that people know that they are connected to the ocean. But that isn't all of the way in which we need the ocean or are dependent upon it. The ocean also provides over half of the oxygen for the planet. So in addition to the things we know about, there are ways that we don't know about that we need from the ocean. The ocean absorbs over 90% of the excess heat that is trapped by greenhouse gases. That's a service that it provides to us. Climate change would be a lot worse than it is if the ocean weren't absorbing that excess heat. The ocean also absorbs around 30% of the carbon dioxide that we emit. And so all of those benefits that the ocean provides to us we take for granted. We're cognizant of some of them, not others. We take them for granted. They've always been there. We think they always will be. But in fact, that may be changing. Those of us that live close to the ocean can see the bounty and the beauty. We can see some of what is happening. And this uh, helps us appreciate that for much of human history, the ocean has provided for people. It's been our grocery store. It's been our highways, our pharmacies, our playgrounds, our churches, our schools, our libraries. It's been an insurance policy against mistakes that we make. 
In short, the ocean has been our life support system. People like scientists that are paying attention to the ocean or fishermen that work on the ocean or those of you who live close to the ocean can see changes that are underway. And in fact, those changes are happening at sometimes frightening pace. Here's, in very brief, a summary of what we know. Over a century ago, the ocean was, for the most part, free of, yes, we had some local pollution, but most of the ocean did not have the kind of pollution that we see today, either nutrient pollution, plastic pollution, chemical pollution. And it was full of just teeming with fish, especially great big, huge top predators, full ocean, just chock-a-block full of them, playing a key important role that they play in maintaining the balance in ocean ecosystems. But today, the ocean is significantly depleted and disrupted. It's also polluted, uh, and it is warmer and is more acidic, and it's less resilient than it used to be. And all of that has happened in a relatively short period of time as a result of a wide array of activities on land and in the ocean. The problems that are causing that are multiple. Things we do on land, things we do on water. But this is just a, a, a summary just to anchor our thinking about some of the challenges. Overfishing is very real. So too is illegal fishing. Uh, loss of safe havens for wildlife. Most of the ocean used to be a de facto marine protected area, but it isn't any longer because we can go and fish and mine and drill pretty much everywhere. So we don't have the kind of safe havens that we used to to protect oceans and ocean ecosystems. Climate change and ocean acidification are uh, taking their toll on the ocean in many ways. Pollu pollution is a serious problem. But in addition to those, there is a very serious lack of awareness of the even existence of the solutions that I'm going to talk about, and there's a lack of political will. So I would lump all these together as some of our major challenges. And this is causing a lot of people to ask the question, um, is it even possible to meet the needs of people even today, much less tomorrow? Is it possible to use the ocean without using it up? Is it possible to do so in an equitable fashion? Is it hopeless? And I would suggest that no, it's not hopeless. The challenges are immense, but it is possible, and that's what we need to focus on. I see really encouraging progress happening, bubbling up all over the world as a result of many things that are underway. Many citizens are becoming more concerned. Many scientists are focusing on solutions, not just identifying and raising the alarm about problems. People are asking, okay, yes, this is a problem. How can we fix it? And many scientists that I know are doing things completely differently from what they used to. They're working with business people. They're working with politicians. They're working with community leaders to focus on solutions. That's different, and that is making a difference. Citizens are becoming engaged. 
policymakers are beginning to take action. Business leaders have a key role to play here, and many of them are paying attention and saying, I need to be part of the solution, not just part of the problem. They're collaborating using two new technologies, and there is just a wealth of amazing stuff that is underway. So on the ocean, there's a lot of good stuff that's happening. It's just not at the scale that we need or the pace that we need. I'm going to make that a little more concrete with two examples, one from fisheries reform and the other from marine protected areas. Not that those other issues aren't unimportant or there isn't good stuff underway, but just to give us something specific to focus on. So I'm going to uh, do sort of this problem-solution construct here and start with overfishing and talk a little bit about fishery reforms. Fisheries are incredibly important. Anybody who thinks about food security needs to be thinking about food from the ocean. The ocean provides uh, over 3 billion people with a significant fraction of their daily protein. It's really important for food security for the future, especially in developing countries. However, the way we have gone about fishing has been with that old, old mindset that the ocean is uh, immensely bountiful and immensely, infinitely resilient. Uh, and we've seen the fraction of the stocks that are developing plummet, the fraction that are fully exploited go, uh, to, go down quite significantly. This is from 1950 to about 2010. The number of collapsed, overexploited stocks has increased significantly and collapsed has increased quite dramatically. 50 years ago, uh, there was very little that was collapsed. Today, it's a significant fraction. So this has been the global pattern of fishing. And it's partly because we've been fishing harder and harder and exploiting newer and newer places, and we've run out of new places to fish. So fishing harder and harder for fewer and fewer returns. And that, in fact, has been a major challenge. And it has caused a lot of people to say, okay, uh, we can't get any more from the ocean. Where are we going to get it? Uh, people turning to aquaculture, which is absolutely going to be part of the solution. But we've seen some very encouraging progress in reforming fisheries so that we're fishing smarter, not harder, and can build stocks back up to be super abundant and so that we can harvest, uh, that, that, uh, harvest fish from those wild stocks uh, in ways that... Uh, provide for more uh, fisheries, but also uh, healthier oceans. Science, in many ways, is driving a lot of the reforms that we've seen in fishery management. Uh, this is just one example of uh, some researchers. Um, Steve Gaines was one of Karina's uh, academic brothers uh, at uh, Oregon State University. His colleague, uh, Chris Costello, and their student, John Lynham, published a paper in 2008 that analyzed fisheries around the world. And they asked the simple question, does the type of fishery management used in a fishery matter? And they found the answer was, it matters hugely if fisheries uh, are managed with the traditional approach 
Uh, most of them are on this deep, deep, deep dive to collapse. Uh, those that are managed with a kind of rights-based management approach where fishermen are given the stake in the future and responsibility to be good stewards, uh, that number, those fisheries are, um, this, that number of fisheries that are managed has increased, and the fisheries that are managed with that tool that were on the decline are now stabilized. And so their conclusion was, if you design fishery management properly and switch to uh, a different type of management, <clears throat> you can turn fisheries around. The U.S. has an amazing story that nobody has heard about turning fisheries around. Uh, fisheries in the United States are more sustainable now than they've ever been after decades and decades of overfishing. And this is a result of a couple of things. One, uh, bipartisan legislation that was passed in 2006 that said, enough of this talk about sustainability. NOAA, as the manager of federal fisheries, has to end overfishing and rebuild those stocks. NOAA has to do that, take the, use that mandate to end overfishing by using science-based limits making fisheries, uh, fishermen accountable and doing management on an ecosystem basis. And where it's appropriate, you may switch to this new type of fishery management that's called rights-based approaches, which give fishermen a voice and a stake in the future. Making that change to implementing this law was really, really hard. It was hard uh, for fishermen, it was hard for managers, it was hard for everybody, but it has been impressively successful. And I cannot give enough credit to some of the fishermen who have been leaders in making this switch and in reforming fisheries, recovering fisheries, and now reaping the bounty. Uh, so these are three of the fishermen that we were able to celebrate at the White House as champions of change. And here are some numbers to make this a little more concrete. These are fisheries in federal waters all around the U.S. And I'm going to compare the year 2000 and the year 2016. The number of overfished stocks that we had in the year 2000 was 92. That's bad. By the year 2016, we had slashed that to 36 because of these reforms. So... There are still some overfish stocks that are there, but the number is just plummeting because of these reforms. Even more impressive, the number of rebuilt stocks has gone from zero in the year 2000 to 43 in the year 2016. So we are ending overfishing and rebuilding those stocks that had been depleted so they can again be fished sustainably. And that is an amazing turnaround story that is due to a lot of hard work.
been listening to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. Jane Lubchenco is talking about the positive changes that are happening that we can have hope on for the future for our ocean. So I hope you've been enjoying this lecture. This is a lecture with Dr. Jane Lubchenco that I recorded at San Francisco State Estuary and Ocean Science Center in November. And this is a lecture she gave at a public forum. So thank you for tuning in to Ocean Currents. Stay with us for the rest of the lecture, and we'll take a break after that with some announcements. Thanks for tuning in. So we are ending overfishing and rebuilding those stocks that had been depleted so they can again be fished sustainably. And that is an amazing turnaround story that is due to a lot of hard work since 2008, we've seen an increase in catches. We've seen an increase in the value. So fishermen are making more money. The fish are more valuable. And an increase in jobs because the stocks had been so depleted, there were fewer and fewer jobs, not much money to make. As the stocks become rebuilt, there's more bounty there. So more fish in the ocean to be part of ocean food webs. More fish can be caught, more value, everybody wins. Good triple bottom line. Not easy to get there, but if you can, then in fact it can be quite successful. The West Coast Groundfish Fishery is a, a poster child for this turnaround. It, over time, uh, was a boomer bust fishery. Uh, it just was this bonanza all along the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, California, uh, about 80 different species in this uh, fishery. Uh, and then in 2000, the year 2000, uh, the, the fishery just collapsed, uh, and it was declared a federal fishery disaster. Completely closed. Fishermen were out of jobs. Fishermen told their kids, don't go into this business. There's no future. This is really awful. I can't pay back loans. Can't pay for my boat. Can't feed my family. Really bad news. Uh, 2000. Uh, after that, that was strong motivation for some of those courageous fishermen to work together with scientists, with managers, with politicians, and design an improved type of fishery management. And in 2011, this new rights-based management program began for the West Coast Groundfish Fishery. And the result of that was very rapid turnaround that surprised everybody. Um, a reduction in the accidental catch of the species that were most vulnerable, uh, which caused the fishery to be shut down. Uh, now, 13 of those species are certified by the Marine Stewardship Council as sustainable. So an independent third-party verifier of sustainability is saying, this is a good choice. And 40 species in this ground fish fishery are a best choice or a good alternative from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. So an amazing turnaround story because people were motivated to fix the problem and because the ocean in this case was still resilient. We caught it before uh, it was too late. So this is what I mean when I'm talking about fishing smarter, not harder. And we have examples from other fisheries around the U.S. of this and examples from a number of other countries around the world. And this is something that is beginning to happen. At the global scale, we still have a lot of overfishing. Make no mistake about that. But now we have the tools and we know the secret ingredients for small-scale fisheries, for large-scale fisheries, to turn those around. In addition to that, the motivation for 
business people, in, for investors, for countries, for companies, is that the calculations that uh, Costello and Gaines and others have now published suggest that if we could reform all the fisheries in, uh, around the world and bring them back to a healthy state, that would give us a huge triple bottom line win, uh, over a 23% increase in harvest per year, so food security issue right there, Increase in profits, over 300%. Increase in fish biomass left in the water. So again, a huge triple bottom line potential that is actually getting the attention of major fishing countries like China, who says, oh, maybe there's, we should be paying more attention to fishery reform, not only pivoting to aquaculture and giving up on wild capture fishery, but doing both. And so there's some, this has caused a lot of interest and in new dialogue. Companies are paying attention. This is a new partnership called CBOS that are the CEOs of the 10 largest seafood companies in the world, both aquaculture and wild capture fishery. And these CEOs have learned about climate change and they're worried. They've learned about illegal fishing. They know about illegal fishing, but they're now a spotlight's been shined on it. They've learned about some of these fishery reform potential, and they have said, we want to be part of the solution, not just part of the problem. And we're going to work together and work with scientists, in this case facilitated by scientists at the Stockholm Resilience Center, to move ahead and be better stewards than we have been. So this is pretty encouraging. That doesn't mean the job's done, but it's progress in the right direction. So I'm going to pivot now to focusing on marine protected areas uh, <clears throat> and leave fishery reform for a moment. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that we now have very few safe havens. Most of the ocean used to be a de facto protected area, isn't anymore. We fish, we mine, we drill pretty much everywhere. Uh, and there is uh, new energy around creating fully to highly protected marine areas to restore these safe havens and accomplish other things. Again, we have a wealth of scientific information to help us understand what the problems are, what the solutions might be, and what the benefits of making some of the changes might be. This is a series of studies from the PISCO team uh, around the science of marine reserves uh, that have been done a number of places around. <clears throat> and they tell us that studies of fully protected areas, no fishing, no extractive activity, no drilling, no mining, can produce huge increases in biomass, in density, in size, and diversity. So when you set up a marine protected area that's where no extractive activity is allowed, stuff gets big inside, it gets crowded, it gets abundant, and some of that bounty spills out to the adjacent areas. This figure shows different species of fish that were tagged inside a protected area and then swam outside and were caught outside. So there's a lot of spillover to the adjacent outside area. Marine protected areas that are fully protected allow fish not only to live but to get big, 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 big. It's what the fishermen call boffs. B-O-F-F-F. -F -F. Big, old, fat, female fish. Boffs. And the fishermen that I know have caps and t-shirts that say, save the boffs, save the boffs, because in fact they know how important those boffs are to the future 
of the fishery and the fish populations and the ecosystems. Here's an example. This is vermilion rockfish of about 15 inches. This individual produces 150,000 young. If you let this fish grow to be this big instead of catching it, if it's in a reserve, then it can grow to, in this case, 24 inches. It produces 1.7 million young. So a little bit larger size means lots more babies. And for the future of the population, those babies are a good thing. So protecting the big mamas, uh, whether they're fish or invertebrates, is really the secret to recovery as well as to the future. Some of that uh, bounty of the, the young that are produced are transported in ocean currents away from the protected area to adjacent outside areas, and that's what this figure shows. So protected areas can both protect biodiversity and habitats inside, but that bounty can help replenish depleted fisheries outside. We also know that if uh, protected areas, fully protected areas are large, then they can protect different types of habitats, and many species of fish and invertebrate occupy different habitats during different stages in their life cycle. And so to help them recover uh, requires protecting all of those different habitats. The ecological balance, the relationships among species, are restored inside a protected area. Having those big predators can help rebalance the system. And in many cases, sometimes fishery management goes awry and it, there was a miscalculation or some of the assumptions didn't work. And so protected areas can provide some insurance against accidental mismanagement or against something uncertain that was unforeseen. Finally, we're also learning that protected areas play a really critical role in making the ecosystem more uh, less likely to change and uh, better able to recover if it does change, if it bleaches or if something else happens. It can recover faster if it's a fully protected area than if it's a fished area. Uh, and so <clears throat> this paper was a summary of a lot of different studies around the world showing that marine, fully protected marine areas are more resilient in the face of climate change than areas that are outside. So this is seen increasingly as a new tool in the toolbox, not only to uh, help uh, mitigate uh, climate change, but also to provide adaptation to climate change. Knowing this evidence about all these benefits that protected areas do has gotten the attention of the countries of the world who have committed, both through the Convention on Biological Diversity and through the Sustainable Development Goals, to protect 10% of the ocean by 2020. So those commitments were made some time ago. 2020 is getting closer. And so people are saying, okay, how are we doing? Well, this is the cumulative area of the ocean that is protected, sort of in kilometers squared, and this is the percent of the ocean area. And you can see that the amount of protected area has been teensy, teensy, teensy tiny until just the last decade, and it has gone up very dramatically, although we're only at just shy of 4%. And that's implemented, so on the water protection. So... Long way to go before we get to 10, but on the other hand, look at this trajectory. 
You know, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. So we've gone from 0.3% a decade ago to about 3.6 today. So an order of magnitude increase uh, or over that. So the current fraction <clears throat> that is protected today is this 3.6 that's implemented. We have another 1.6 that's been designated. So a law that says, okay, this area will be protected, but that hasn't actually happened yet. Or proposed, a head of state might say, we're going to do this. So if we add all that up, we're close to 7.3% for all MPAs, all marine protected areas. Those that are strongly to fully protected, that have all those benefits that I just described, we only have 2% implemented. If we have another half percent designated, another half percent proposed. So this still uh, is, getting, is getting us closer to 7, uh, but we are not quite there uh, yet. You might ask, instead of the global numbers, how is the U.S. doing or how is California doing? Well, the U.S., when President Obama took office, 5% um, of the U.S. exclusive economic zone was protected, uh, highly protected. By the time he left office, that had uh, more than fourfold increase, uh, was up to 23%. So... Uh, the U.S. is one of the countries that's in the lead on this in terms of the fraction of its exclusive economic zone that is highly protected. Uh, California has been a leader in this space as well. Californians, lots of polls, this is PPIC, says 71% of Californians rate the condition of the ocean and beaches as very important to them personally. And more than three-quarters of Californians say it's very important that California has MPA. So that's from a 2018 poll. California has 16% of its state waters, so that's shore to three nautical miles, and then the federal waters start. So 16% of state waters are in MPAs, and half of that about is highly to fully protected. So California is a leader in the ocean protection uh, in terms of its network of protected areas. And you see here the north central coast, and these are areas that are uh, fully to highly protected, both the reds and the blues here. Uh, and this network of protected areas was designed with scientific principles in mind to allow for connectivity from one to the other by the movement of juveniles or the movement of adults. Um, about 7% of the state plus federal waters is protected, so less, less well on the federal side off California. The results of this protection uh, have been, uh, information is now coming forth and being published about the results. Uh, targeted fish species like kelp bass, lobsters, sheephead are much larger, and they're more abundant inside those protected areas, and they are increasing the targeted species are increasing in abundance outside, so some of that bounty is spilling out to adjacent areas. So the conclusions from the marine protected area part is that we've seen some strong science, we've seen some good partnerships, and changes in social norms, awareness uh, about the potential for this tool and increasing use to adopt it by countries have resulted in over an order to increase in magnitude over the last decade. 
Um, it's less than countries have agreed to, and a lot of countries are now saying, you know, 10% probably isn't enough. We need more on the order of 30%. That's what IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, has called for, 30% and highly protected. So we have a long way to go on that front. The fully protected marine protected areas may be especially important in providing resilience to climate change. Uh, and finally, um, the challenge continues to be somebody who has to give up something, who's using a space, and to give it up and not use it anymore, there's, there's huge resistance to doing that. And so there's a lot of conversation around how to change that dynamic to be able for everyone to benefit indirectly, but also users that are giving it up to benefit directly from the uh, increase in bounty that we see. So there's some similarities across these two different areas and other areas that we've analyzed in terms of how do you make change happen. And some of those have to do with changing incentives. What are the incentives for the actors in a particular activity? Uh, and economics, changing the economic incentives in the case of the rights-based management for fishery, fishermen, benefited economically because the rights-based approach uh, enabled alignment of the short-term incentives and long-term incentives. Fishermen are rewarded for being good stewards, but also changes in social norms in what's the right thing to do, what do I personally believe, but also what uh, my friends believe. And both of those are changing behavior. And so changing the incentives can change, uh, convert a vicious cycle into a virtuous cycle. And it's both economic incentives, which a lot of people tend to think about when you talk about incentives, but the social, the the social incentives, whether it's social norms or personal norms, are also really important. So we've talked about sort of where I came from, why should you care, what are the problems, what are a few of the solutions, what's your role in this? And I would suggest that one of the biggest problems is that uh, most people aren't aware, uh, some aren't even aware that they're problems, uh, some are aware of the problems, but tune out because they just seem too big to fix and too complicated and there's enough other stuff going on. So they're not aware of the solutions. And therefore, there is a lack of hope and a lack of responsibility. I can do something about this. I think there actually is a lot of reason to be hopeful. There are good things that are happening. Uh, there's successful uh, knowledge to action examples. There's science-based policy reforms, our ending overfishing and rebuilding stocks. That's hopeful. There is resilience in those ocean ecosystems, and we can bring things back if we get on with doing it. We've seen increasing recognition of the importance of focusing on incentives and changing the incentives. We've seen a huge um, incentive in terms of the economic uh, and environmental potential of rebuilding fisheries. And we've seen increases in highly protected marine areas. Again, not enough, but enough to be encouraged that we could do more. So I think solutions exist. They're not at the scale that we need. So we need greater awareness and greater action to actually make that leap. What can individuals do? Well, staying informed, coming to listen here, but also staying informed on a routine basis, 
um, reducing your own footprint through your carbon footprint, your water footprint, your plastic footprint. That's something everybody uh, can do. What you choose to eat is really important. Not only sustainable seafood, sustainably caught or farmed, but eating lower on the food web is important. More plant-based diets. Uh, joining, supporting, uh, inventing uh, action groups so you can work with friends and colleagues. Voting is really important. Communicating with your elected officials is really important, and I'm constantly amazed at how many people don't do that. Um, but running for office is also a very viable option. So all of the above, please, folks. So the bottom line here, again, is that your future, your kids' futures, your grandkids' futures are highly dependent on the ocean. They're connected to the ocean. And so we need to care about what happens in the ocean, and we need to be better stewards. We need to understand some of these solutions. We need to make them happen. We need to accelerate the pace of change. And we've all seen situations where you can have a 180-degree flip in some attitudes towards something once enough people get motivated and make it happen. So that's what we need here. It's time for a new narrative. It's no longer the case that it's too big to fail. It's no longer the case that it's too big to fix. The new narrative is it is our future, and if we work together, we can fix it, and we must. It's the key to our future. And I would suggest that all of you can help make that happen. I start off saying, can we use the ocean without using it up? And I would say, it's tough. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. The task is daunting. Ecological limits are very real. But if we work together, if we pay attention to the science, we can make a change. We can make this happen. So my hope is that we can recover the bounty and we can use it wisely. I have three wonderful graduate students to thank for working with me on a lot of this work. And together we would say, enough folks of this doom and gloom. Uh, it's time to, pardon the pun, seize the day, and to write a new narrative one in which citizens and scientists are leading because they're taking a quantum leap for awareness and action because the ocean is our future. And my question to you is, will you help? Thank you. Thank you, Jane Lubchenco. Will you help? That's what I ask every day. What are you doing to help? I hope lots. I know by listening, you're helping by learning more about ocean sciences. I love that she says, pay attention to the science. We can make this happen and we can recover the bounty. So lots of positive things to think about as we move forward in dealing with ocean challenges with our changing climate. You're listening to Ocean Currents, and we're running really low on time, and I want to make sure we get you to hear our Positively Ocean episode for the month by Liz Fox. Volunteer Liz Fox produces Positively Ocean for me to bring a positive story to you about ocean health. So stay tuned for Positively Ocean. Hi, this is Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. I'm Liz Fox. 
tis the season of competing for prime parking spots, and not just at shopping malls anymore. Spaces can be limited at Drake's Beach Visitor Center at Point Reyes National Seashore, where you might even lose out to a 1,600-pound elephant seal. That's because northern elephant seal colonies are on the rebound after near extinction due to hunting over a century ago. And it's a change that humans will have to get used to. Sarah Cody is a marine ecologist for the Point Reyes National Seashore. That is a good problem to have, that we're dealing with a population that is rebounding. It's so successful that we don't know what to do about it. (laughs) Whereas other resource managers are dealing with how do we save a species. Scientists don't know if elephant seals populated Point Reyes' shores before their population crisis, but they seem to be here to stay. The first breeding pair of elephant seals were sighted in Point Reyes in 1981. Since then, the colony has grown to more than 2,000 members. What's particularly complicated is that the goliath, squid, and fish eaters spend months at a time hunting thousands of miles from shore, and they need to haul out onto land specifically to rest. So when a beachgoer sees one, it may look like a bloated, lazy log, and it would be hard to imagine the behemoth's capabilities. But elephant seals can be fast and furious, outpacing a human even on land. When they are fighting, they don't care what is around them, what's in their way. They will trample over anything. And it's not just males in battle. Females with pups can be fiercely protective, just like bears with cubs. Cody wants the public to enjoy observing elephant seals in a way that protects people and the animals. It is an amazing experience. There are not many locations where you can see elephant seals. And so we do want people to enjoy that. We just want to make sure we're protecting humans and seals. Elephant seals need land for other life necessities too. Males' dramatic competitions for harems draw visitors by the droves to a lookout at Chimney Rock. Outside of mating season, mature elephant seals return to land in the summer to molt. And females and pups need land to nurse and grow, and juveniles come to shore at different times during the year to strengthen their bone development and develop habits that will help them mate in the future. That's why Chimney Rock Beach is closed permanently to foot traffic. The restrictions in that location work well, since there's only one narrow access path that can be easily chained and clearly marked as closed. Cody said the public generally understands and respects the park's limits, which are similar to other breeding areas in California state parks. Recently, though, the colony has expanded down the coast and into areas of Drake's Beach that are accessible to curious or unaware beachgoers. Several females have found refuge for themselves and their pups in beach areas that humans are accustomed to enjoying. Intense storms made some individuals leave the colony area in search of safety. So it went from like 20 females to 300 in like three years. (laughs) And went from a small little area to like a mile and a half of the beach. And coupled with the threat of beach loss due to rising sea levels in areas that are backed by towering cliffs, elephant seal territories are only more likely to overlap with human recreation areas in the future. That's why Point Reyes National Seashore runs a winter wildlife docent program. Their goal is to educate visitors about these animals and how to safely view them. 
Last month, Cody even met with counterparts from Año Nuevo State Park and Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary to share best practices about how to keep animals and humans safe, especially during this year's mating season, which is in its very beginning. There's a lot of comparisons between elephant seals and soap operas. Because there's so much drama during the breeding season. You know, the males fighting, the females fighting, females trying to steal pups from other females. This is pretty fun. If you plan to come to the park, please make sure to check in at the visitor center and find out the areas to avoid to protect yourself and the seals. And always respect posted signs. And that's an example of how you can do right by the ocean. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positive in ocean. For Ocean Currents and KWMR Radio, this is Liz Fox reporting from Point Reyes National Seashore. Thank you, Liz Fox, for another awesome Positively Ocean episode. Those elephant seals are showing up here at Point Reyes. Don't forget to check in and find out where they are and how to be safe around them. We are out of time. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. We are 11 to 12, and you can hear past episodes at our website, cordellbank.noaa.gov, or in iTunes. And please leave a review if you listen to the podcast, and let me know you're listening and tell me what you think. I love hearing from listeners, so if you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, email me, cordellbank at noaa.gov. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the ocean, bay, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.